0: Invinidos. Hello and welcome to City Breaks Seville, Episode 8, Bullfighting. I think that if you said to various people, What's the first thing you think of when you think about Seville? people would say orange blossom, they'd say Alcazar perhaps, fiestas, flamenco, and somebody would certainly say bullfighting. So I think that that really should get an episode to itself. And here it is. I'm extremely aware that it's a controversial topic. But I think you do have to accept that it's part of Spanish culture. It's part particularly of Andalusian culture. And that centres actually very specifically on Seville with the oldest bullring in the world. And so I think it can't be ignored. So the plan for the episode then. I'm going to deal with the controversy first and then delve into history a little bit. How did it start? How long has it been going? That sort of thing. Tell you a bit about what actually happens in a bullfight. Try using some travel writers extracts mainly to explain what it is about bullfighting that some people at least like. I want to mention the business side. I didn't realise until I started researching it how much more than just, an in inverted commas, a cultural phenomenon it is, but that it's also something which keeps many thousands of people employed. I'm going to go on a little visit to the Real Maestranza, Seville's Bullring, see what's there, and end in literary fashion with a little extract about bullfighting. From a poem by one Federico Garcia Loca. I came across bullfighting in Seville much earlier than I thought I was perhaps going to. On the very day we arrived, in fact, just dragging a suitcase across some cobbled road in the arenal district of the city, and became aware that there was something going on a lot of noise, quite a gathering of people. As we got nearer, we could hear drum beats and horn hooters, and see certainly hundreds of people wending their way through the street, down towards the bullring, I found out later, and actually a little bit of trying to unravel the Spanish on their placards and t-shirts told me that what I was looking at was a demonstration against bullfighting. We'd arrived in April, which is actually just before the beginning of the bullfighting season, and this was timed to be right at the start. Hundreds and hundreds of people gather in the roads to say, no, stop, we don't want any more of that did a little bit of research and I discovered quite quickly that this is by no means a new phenomenon. I managed to dig up somebody from the 18th century and someone from the 19th century also saying that they didn't think much of bullfighting. So let's start by looking at those two quotes. The first one dates from 1760, was written by one Reverend Edward Clark visiting, I don't think Seville, I think he was in Madrid, and he explained that he really didn't think you should think too much about the brutality of what was going on by using the words, I do not deny that the corrida, corrida means bullfight, will not bear the speculations of the closest or the compassionate feelings of a tender heart. But then he went on to say, well, actually, perhaps we don't think about that too much, maybe we shouldn't go too soft, and he wrote, but after all, one must not speculate too nicely lest we should lose the hardness of manhood in the softer sentiments of philosophy. So yes, it was cruel, but actually it was good for men to do these tough things. The second visitor was in Seville, and he was there in October 1833, went to one bullfight, said in fact afterwards that one was quite enough, thank you very much, but his objections were also not perhaps so much in tune with the objections which you hear today. It was more really a complaint that something which had been a very dignified activity conducted by the bravest men in the country had descended into something that was really just a spectacle that people paid money to see. So he put it like this. When the flower of chivalry of the proudest nation in the world descended into the arena and the highest names of Spain sought distinction and renown by their exploits in the circus, the barbarity of the amusement was in great degree veiled from the eye. So, OK, it used to be such a fantastic spectacle that you watched it without realising how horrible and bloodthirsty it was. But then he said, actually, I don't think that anymore, because, the whole display is deteriorated to a mere paltry show. The spectacle is anything but ennobling and affords no better idea of the former glories that illustrated it than the processions and tinsel glitter of a boo that the fair gives of a royal pageant in its reality. Today, I think you could say that opinion divides fairly fiercely into two halves. The people who think that bullfighting is part of Spanish culture, has a valuable place in its society still, has got historic links, etc. And the people for whom it's simply nothing more than a cruel blood sport which should have no place in a civilised society. So, what to think? I decided just to look up some facts and here are some that I came across. Many thousands of bulls are killed each year in Spanish bullfights, so there's more of it than I'd realised. The industry is worth a billion euros a year. That's going to stop some people wanting to have it done away with, isn't it? There are 40 bullfighting schools in Spain, so a new generation of bullfighters being trained up. There are 70 bull rings in Andalusia, the most famous one, of course, being the one in Seville. And there's been a real surge of campaigns, particularly in the last few decades, by people like the animal rights societies to have it stopped. It was banned on television in 2007, although in fact a few years later it was reinstated. So it sounds like that tussle a bit similar perhaps to the hunting debate in Britain, where there are just very entrenched views on both sides and it's going to be difficult to do away with it. Okay, so it's controversial. And I wanted to leave the last word on that topic to a writer called Edward Lewine, who wrote a book unlike any other I could imagine, really, where he followed a matador around Spain for a year and really made an attempt to see bullfighting from the inside and then wrote a book about it. The book, which I'm going to refer to a bit more, actually, in the travel writing episode, is called Death and the Sun. It was published in 2005. And he was obviously very aware, as he wrote it, that this was going to bring out lots of strong feelings and so he prefaced the whole thing with something which he called a short note on morality i'm going to read a couple of extracts from that so it opens like this the subject of this book is a controversial one in a formal spanish bullfight six large mammals are put to death for the afternoon's entertainment of a paying crowd the central moral question raised by such a spectacle is whether it is right for people to kill animals for pleasure Various human activities raise this question. No one in the modern world has a life or death need to eat red meat, wear leather, hunt and fish, or attend bullfights. People continue to do these things because they like to. Are carnivores, leather wearers, sportsmen, and bullfighting aficionados behaving in a moral way? That is an excellent and complicated question, but it is not the topic of this book. Then, towards the end, he writes the following. The goal here is to try to explain bullfighting as it is, by taking a hard look at things that are hard to look at, like death and the sun. After finishing this book, some readers may find themselves more sympathetic towards bullfighting, and others more resolved in their dislike of it. Either way, that is for the readers to decide. Okay then, so let's go back in time to the Romans, who are believed to have brought bullfighting to Spain. It's thought that the Moors too pursued bullfighting. After the Reconquista, bullfighting continued, and up until the 17th century, it was really something done by noblemen, partly because they had the money to afford to do it, and also because it was seen as a way of toughening them up and getting them ready for war. Things took a different turn in the early 1700s in Andalusia, because along came someone called Francisco Romero, who was the first man to fight a bull on foot rather than on horseback. And also the first one to kill a bull with a sword. So at that point, bullfighting's getting to look a little bit more like what we would recognise today. He was very popular. People paid to go and watch him in action. He was actually probably the first professional bullfighter. And things took off from there. So his son, Juan, carried on, although introduced some changes. So, for example, he was the first one to introduce the idea that a bullfighter would work as part of a team the team would be called the Quadrilla and that again exists in bullfighting today. And then Francisco's grandson, Pedro, continued as well. He's said to have had a 60-year career as a matador and to have killed 5,000 bulls. And these three men are the first example, really, of something that you do seem to get in bullfighting, namely the idea of a family dynasty, father, then son, sometimes also grandson. In fact, exactly that in the case of the matador followed by Edward Lewin in his book because he attached himself to a current matador called Francisco Rivera y Perez, whose father had been a famous matador and whose grandfather was Antonio Ordenez, who was very well-known in his day and was the matador about whom Ernest Hemingway wrote. The early 20th century is seen as the golden age of bullfighting, particularly because there were two very well-known matadors fighting then, One was called Joselito. He's the one I already mentioned who bought the diamond and emerald brooches. Such was his wealth and gave them to the Macarena in Seville. He was killed in the ring in 1920. And then the other one was Juan Belmonte, very similar age. I think they were only two or three years apart, the two of them. He was equally well known, equally revered and a bit luckier because he survived all his bullfights and died a more natural death despite the fact that he had been gored by a bull in at least 20 different fights. Just going back to the Macarena and the diamond brooches, there is a curious link between bullfighting and the Virgin Mary, which is one of the things about it that I just find rather baffling. So Mary is the patron saint of Matadors and in this Bull ring, possibly in others as well, I don't know, there is a chapel in which matadors pray to her before they enter the ring. Also, if you go to the Macarena, the church in Seville, and go to the museum next door, where you can see lots of religious clothing used in the Semana Santa, bizarrely again, also on display there, is a collection of bullfighters' suits, things that the matadors, over the years, have donated to the church. So, today then, what actually happens? Well, usually there will be three matadors, and they will fight two fights each, so six bulls are killed. And in each bullfight, which is known as a corrida, there are three different stages. The first one is when the bull enters the arena, and he's up against several junior fighters, and then after a while they're joined by the matador, who starts enticing the bull with his cape, and goes through a few of his flourishes. Then the matador leaves, and that leads on to the second stage, which is the one where the banderillós come along. They're armed with darts, which they try to stick into the bull's neck, which wounds it and weakens it. That's one of the things I find difficult. You know, they seem to be making it a less than fair fight, really, don't they? Anyway, that's stage two. And stage three is when the matador comes back, and this is the dramatic point where it's up to the matador to make a show of playing against the bull, doing his moves and flourishing his cape, And finally, choosing a moment to kill him by plunging his sword deep into the bull's neck, aiming to kill the bull instantly. That's the part that's called the estocado. This last stage, the third stage, has got some quite strict rules about it. So there's a trumpet blown after 10 minutes, if indeed it's still going on that long, to warn the matador that he hasn't got long left. There's a second blast at 13 minutes, and if the bull is still alive at 15 minutes, there'll be a final blast of the trumpet. And someone will come into the ring and lead the bull away. And that's deemed to be very shameful for the matador. He's failed in his task. And again, another thing I find a bit bizarre, at the end of an afternoon of bullfighting, if anybody's deemed to have done particularly well, they will be awarded an ear, which I think is actually literally a bull's ear cut off. And in exceptional cases, a matador may be awarded two ears. And there's a whole hierarchy about that as well. So an ear awarded in, let's say, Seville or Madrid or one of the huge bullfighting rings is worth more than an ear awarded in one of the lesser-known places. Without implying at all that everybody loves a bullfight, you do have to say that they do draw large crowds who can be very enthusiastic if they think they're watching a particularly worthy spectacle. And again, I think that's very difficult for many of us to understand. Ernest Hemingway put it quite nicely when he wrote, quote, The bullfight is not a sport in the Anglo-Saxon sense of the word. That is, it is not an equal contest or an attempt at an equal contest between a bull and a man. Rather, it is a tragedy. So how to explain what it is that people enjoy about it? Again, I'm going to turn to other people for some of the explanation. The first person being Laurie Lee, who wrote various times about having been to bullfights. And on one occasion, he arrived after the killing of the second bull of the afternoon and wrote very movingly about what that moment showed about what it was that people liked about bullfights. So this is how he explained what happened. A quartet of plumed horses dragged away the body. The sand was raked smooth and we waited for the entry of the next. This is one of the great dramatic moments of every encounter. The fighters take up their positions The hushed crowd awaits, then the huge doors are thrown open and the unknown beast charges forth, fresh in anger, into the ring. So this idea of unpredictability, what's going to happen, who's going to prevail? In his description of this particular afternoon, he listed a few things that he thought were part of what the spectators would regard to be a bad kill. So that might perhaps be down to the bull, perhaps it doesn't really engage in the fight, Maybe it's reluctant to enter the ring at all. Perhaps when it gets injured, it leans against the side of the ring and doesn't seem to want to fight back. All these things the crowd would not like. Equally, it can be the matador who lets them down. So if the matador kills a bull too soon, or takes too long over it, or doesn't kill him cleanly, or doesn't put up a good brave show before the kill, all of that will be deemed to be not a very good bullfight. Here, then, are a few lines in which Laurie Lee describes a few moments which he thought were bullfighting at its absolute best. The boy entirely dominated the bull. He seemed to turn the fury of the beast into a creative force which he alone controlled, a thrusting weight of flesh and bone with which he drew ritual patterns across the sand. The bull charged and charged again, loud nostrilled, sweating for death, and the boy turned and teased him at will, reducing him at last to a kind of enchanted helplessness, so that the bull stood hypnotised, unable to move, while the young man kissed his horns. Describing a different fight later that afternoon, he talks about a moment when the matador and the bull were at very close range to each other. The matador was poised just above the bull's horns, so close, as he put it, that a flick of the animal's horns could have disembowelled him. And then there's that moment where everybody's watching, thinking what's going to happen and the matador plunges his sword into the animal decisively and kills him with one blow that apparently is an example of what would be deemed a good bullfight one that ends with that decisive stroke the travel writer jan morris also wrestled with this problem of what was good and what was bad and in one short sentence summed it up as follows if you are unlucky your corrida will be one long inept butchery but if you have chosen well you may see a kill by one of the masters. Short, calm, elegant. Does that help? Does that make it any clearer what it is people go to see? Possibly not. And another thing that I read in the Edward Levine book, which made me just feel all the sorrier really for the whole spectacle, was his explanation of why it was that a bull would always be killed at the end of a fight. So if the matador doesn't manage to kill him, then somebody else will. And the reason is, as he puts it, that a bull is a noble, intelligent animal, which to me just makes it sound like more of a loss when he's killed. And he says a bull in the ring is going through something for the very first time, but he learns very quickly. And if he's given a second chance with a second matador, he'll be much harder to defeat. So as Edward Levine puts it, he was told by somebody in the bullfighting circle that, quote, you cannot perform with the same bull twice so much for my attempt to explain what it is that's going on in terms of the artistry and the bravery and all of that side of things. But I did want to mention the business side as well, because there's no doubt that that is also the case. It's about all the breeders who make their living raising prize bulls. It's about the matadors and their teams, the top ones being paid really big money. It's about all the people who work in the bull rings and promotions and television and all of that. The business side of things is quite nicely explained in a book I read called As I Walked Through Spain in Search of Laurie Lee, which was written by P.D. Murphy. And he describes how one afternoon, I don't think it was in Seville, I think it was somewhere else, but he went into a bar near a bullring and got chatting with the locals and found out all about the business side of things. So they explained to him that every matador has a big backup team behind him They do things like research the bulls, so they'll actually go to the breeding farms and see the bulls that their matador is going to fight and find out what they're like and then devise tactics and strategy based on what they've learnt. And some of them will be the drivers driving the matador around the country, looking after his clothes, etc. But they have more hands-on roles as well. So, for example, some of them will be standing in the wings when their matador is fighting in case he freezes. At which point they will shout or gesture to distract the bull. There's also the breeding side. The people in the bar were very clear that they thought it was the breeders who made the real money. So their role is things like identifying prize sires, finding some nice big aggressive bulls. But the female, the mother, has to be aggressive as well. And they need to produce bulls with the right balance of yes, aggression but also an element of cunning and patience so that they will have a go at trying to outwit the matador. And the spoils are very high for the breeder who get that right, who become known by the bullring owners as the people from whom they want to buy the sort of bull that will make a really good showing. I'll come back to Edward Lewin's book in a future episode, but that was very good on the nitty-gritty of all this side of things. talked about driving from one ring to another, sometimes hundreds of kilometres, often driving all night, how the whole team is putting up in a town somewhere and all the things they have to deal with apart from those actual moments when the matador is in the bullring. It can be quite instructive to go and visit a bullring even if you don't want to see a bullfight. The one in Seville for example, you can go and visit I think at any time of day more or less and look round it Go on a tour if you want and go to the museum and see what you can learn. This particular bullring, the oldest one in the world, dates from 1761 and is called locally and in bullfighting circles generally, I think, the Catedral del Torrello, so the Cathedral of Bullfighting. It was built in the 18th century for the Real Maestranza de Cavaliera, which translates as the Royal Equine Society. And it's really still today quite an institution. So it seats 17,500 people. It's got its own school of what they call toromaki, so bullfighting, training up the next generation. Tiered seating all around, I was going to say all around the circle. I believe it's not totally circular. Perhaps it's meant to be and isn't quite. There's also something called the Prince's Box, which as far as I can tell is pretty much like the Royal Box at Wimbledon. So if any royalty are coming, they'll sit in it, and the rest of the time they have invited guests who take up the places instead. There are pictures in the guide to the Seville Bullring of famous people like Prince Rainier or Orson Welles or Ava Gardner coming to watch a bullfight here in Seville, and also lots of pictures of various generations of the Spanish royal family who have come over the years. So tiered seating all around, divided very much by price into sol and sombre, so the sunny seats, the ones where there's no respite from the beating sun, and the sombre seats in the shade, which cost a bit more and are infinitely more comfortable to sit in, I would imagine. They're not really seats, actually. It's more layers of concrete steps that you you perch on. A lot of people bring cushions. And the whole thing itself just seems so very, very Spanish. So down to details like the sand on the floor is a dark ochre colour and the building round it is painted white and some of it in dark red. So you've got the colours of the Spanish flag right there in front of you. If you go around the bull ring, perhaps in the company of a guide who can show you what you're looking at, you'll see that there are things like pens which the bulls are kept in until they're allowed out. There's a barrier all round the ring. It's about four feet high, I think, so high enough to keep the bulls in, but which the matadors can jump over to if they need to escape quickly. There are sheds, rather horribly, for dead bulls to be dragged to. There's even an enclosure for a vet to work, if he's going to examine any of the animals. There's a stable for the horses, who are going to come in and help drag the bodies away. There is, rather frighteningly, an infirmary for emergency treatments. In Edward Lewin's book, actually, there's an incident in one of those. Again, I'm not sure that was in Seville, but somebody was gored and treated there before being transferred to hospital. There's the Bullfighter's Chapel that I mentioned a little while ago. And in the Seville Bullring, at least, there's also the museum. So there are different sections to that. There's one on the history of bullfighting. It's got things like the very earliest silk poster produced in 1740 for a bullfight. Lots of information on the sort of people who were fighting bulls early on. Army uniforms, for example, of people who were engaged in bullfighting. Then there's a section on the nineteenth century with lots of amazing paintings of bullfighting. It seems to be a subject that painters are very keen to engage with. Then there's a display on the twentieth century, so the golden age, with a lot of information about the two bullfighters that were so famous, Juan Belmonte and Joselito. There are bronze sculptures of both of them. There are things belonging to each of them. And then the modern section is full of costumes and capes. And a display of collection of posters. They have a, and they produce a new poster every year for the Real Maestranza. I think you can buy copies of them if you want to take one home. And then, rather horribly, on the wall there are the heads of various well-known bulls who met their end here in Seville Stadium. So there we have it. As I said at the beginning, whatever else you think, you can't argue that this isn't very Spanish and indeed very civilian. It'll be interesting to see whether it lasts into the future or not. I got the feeling that the anti-bullfighting campaigns are having more and more say, but I don't really know. Anyway, to finish, I thought I might treat you to a few lines from a Lorca poem. I think Federico García Lorca is probably Spain's best-known 20th century writer. He was a playwright and a poet, and he wrote a poem specifically about bullfighting, which has a title which doesn't leave much to the imagination, it being called La Cogida y la Muerte, which means goring and death. And he wrote this poem. I don't know if he was actually there at the time, but in 1934, a particular bullfighter, Juan Sanchez Mejiaz, was killed in the bullring in Seville, gored to death, we're told, by a bull called Granadino. Seems rather odd to me that they give these poor bulls names, but anyway, Granadino. And he decided to write a poem about this. It's very graphic. You've got words like gangrene and groin wounds in it. It talks about how they burn up like suns at five o'clock. And the phrase at five o'clock in the afternoon is repeated several times through the poem. It's quite a banal phrase and, and it contrasts all the time with the terror and the life and death struggle that's going on out in the bullring. ring, which keeps repeating this five o'clock in the afternoon as if it's the most natural thing to be happening at that time of day. So, with apologies for the Spanish accent if it's not quite right, I'll try and read you four lines, which go like this. A las cinco de la tarde, at five o'clock in the afternoon. Ay, qué terrible es cinco de la tarde. What a terrible five o'clock in the afternoon. Eran las cinco en todos los relojes. It was five o'clock on all the clocks. Eran las cinco en sombra de la tarde. It was five o'clock in the shade of the afternoon. I'll spare you the bits about what actually happened to the bullfighter. I think it might be true to say that every Spaniard knows that poem. OK, so that's the end of today's episode. And next week, I'm going to do an episode on that other very Spanish, very civilian cultural phenomenon, one that was born, as we heard in last week's episode, just across the river from the main part of Seville in Triana, and that is flamenco. Let's have a look at the history, talk about what you can find out and see if you go to Seville's Flamenco Museum, and try and capture exactly what flamenco actually is. I found that quite hard to define. I know it's song and it's dance and it's guitar music. It's all about rhythm, clapping, stomping. It's certainly about the costumes and the stances and the proud carriage of the dancers, but not easy to pin down. But I'm going to have a go. So I hope you'll join me next week for that and I hope too that you found this week's episode interesting, whatever your personal opinions on bullfighting are. Okay then, so thank you very much for listening. Muchas gracias and goodbye until next week. Adios.